During the pandemic, we've been getting hyper-local with our coverage, especially digging into the Toronto housing and homelessness crisis that COVID turned the heat up to its boiling point. But the pandemic has affected different municipalities in unique ways. Some subtle and some glaringly obvious. So it's time to check in with our neighbours to the west. Calgary and Edmonton are about to undergo very important local elections at a very inconvenient and hyper-politicized time. So, if you're interested in Canadian cities, and you're listening to this so it's a safe bet, you're going to want to follow Alberta in the coming days. Let's all head out west. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from my little corner of Moss Park, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show... I check in with Alberta-based journalist Tim Querengesser to talk about the fourth wave, provincial politics, and the impending municipal elections. But first, when the park encampment evictions happened this summer in Toronto, with a huge show of police force, private security, and fences, a lot of people's first question was, just how much did this cost? And couldn't that money be spent on people experiencing homelessness instead of on chasing them away? Well... Now we know exactly what those operations cost. The total comes close to $2 million, and Matt Elliott broke that number down in a recent Toronto Star column. Stand by. So, Matt, on on the last Friday of the summer, uh, there was a big news dump from the city, something that journalists had been asking for pretty much all summer. What was that, and and why is it a little suspect when when a big news dump comes out on Friday like that? Yeah, the timing of this was definitely... interesting it wasn't something as far as i know none nobody in the toronto media got like a heads up that this was coming it wasn't on like a a council agenda or a committee agenda or anything it just sort of came out in a press release and yeah like you said it was a friday afternoon the last friday of the summer technically and also the last friday before the federal election so if you wanted to you know put out some news that people might have missed because they were focused on other things that would be a pretty good time to do it But who knows what the actual motivation was. So the news that did come out uh, had to do with the uh, evictions that took place this past summer in three Toronto parks. And immediately after those evictions happened, uh, people living in encampments, uh, you know, uh, unhoused or homeless people basically, you know, made to leave the park by uh, what turned out to be a whole lot of police and a whole lot of private security. Soon after those events happened, the media wanted to know uh, very fairly, what did that cost? How much did the city spend on those actions over the course of those three evictions? And the city, you know, I guess to their credit, said pretty quickly, yeah, we will definitely have those numbers for you. They're on the way. We just got to you know, put them together. But it ended up taking a number of weeks. And then, yeah, all of a sudden on the Friday afternoon before the federal election, we got the details. So not the greatest timing from you know, a journalist's point of view. 
but I guess it's good that we have the information now at the very least. Yeah. And, and with that information, you were able to write uh, a column uh, in, in the Toronto star. And uh, what I always appreciate from your column is the, the big number. It's usually a, an eye popping takeaway uh, just to put the, the broader piece in, into perspective. And the big number in, in this uh, edition of your column was uh, $33,000 per the 60 people who were evicted from the three parks, Trinity Bellwoods, Alexander Park, and Lamport Stadium Park. And, and you kind of get into just how much money that is and, and what that might mean for these 60 people that were evicted from what, what had been their homes for months. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where it took some time to do the math. I mean, I try to do it as quickly as possible because I wanted to get the information out there you know, soon after we got the press release, but the city, you know, included a bunch of different numbers in the release. There were numbers for the security action. There were numbers for fencing and there were numbers for, you know, landscaping and cleanup. So adding all those up, you get about $2 million across the three park evictions. And then I went back and looked at how many people the city say they actually removed from the parks when they did evictions, And that totaled about 60 people. So you divide 2 million by 60 and it turns out, uh, on a per person basis, we are talking about $33,000 a person. And yeah, it's just, it sort of blew me away when I saw it because, you know, for the average homeless person, the average person, uh, $33,000 is a huge amount of money. If somebody just walked by and gave you thirty three grand, you would make some changes to your life. You'd be able to, you know, do a lot more than you're able to do right now. And uh, for that to have been spent, you know, not on programs that are about sort of the long-term betterment or improvement or aid or, or help to these people who were living in these parks, but instead, you know, just blown over the course of these actions. And then the follow-up is, is really uh, hard to take and hard to accept. That's really what formed the, the core of the column I wrote for the star. Yeah. I mean, if, if uh, listeners need uh, some kind of hypothetical perspective, you could imagine that might be a, an annual salary for a freelance podcaster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's slightly more than you would make on minimum wage for working full time for an entire year. So yeah, like this is, is a huge amount of money. You could do more than uh, a year's rent for the average one bedroom apartment in Toronto, even with Toronto prices for that amount of money. Uh, if you go to, I know, to like a bachelor or a studio, you could probably do about two years of rent. Like we are talking about a, a amount of money that could make a huge, huge difference in these people's lives. And I was hoping that, you know, people seeing it broken down right like that, even if you had, you know, differing views on the encampments and, uh, you know, what it meant. Like, I think for a lot of people, just seeing how much it cost should cause them to to really stop and think about, you know, what happened this past summer and what's been happening for the last decade as far as housing and homelessness in Toronto go. Right. And I was wondering if we could put the numbers in perspective another way. Um, let's take the total of almost $2 million. I think when you start talking about millions, a lot of people, their eyes kind of glaze over because it's just an impossible amount to comprehend for the average person. And certainly the city deals with much larger sums of money all the time than $2 million. But I was just wondering, like, to your mind, like, what does $2 million buy you in, in terms of a city budget? Like, either either capital, you know, you, you purchase a thing or, or just is there a comparison even in like operating expenses? Like, what, what kind of programs could this sustain for, for what amount of time? 
Oh, I mean, I could have done so, so much. And I mean, the easiest way to think about that is just to think about it in terms of rent subsidies, you know, like the city will does have a program where, you know, they will provide a subsidy for rent for people who are in need of housing. Um, it's challenged because there's just not enough housing units available that are, you know, that you can apply the subsidies against. But you still, you take a rent subsidy of $1,100 a month, for example, and you see how many of those you can get with $2 million. You are talking about helping out a lot of, of people. And yeah, I think it's in, you know, the city would push back and say, well, you know, it's only 2 million and we spent, you know, 300 million, 400 million, you know, whatever on programs to fight poverty over X number of years. So the numbers get even bigger from their perspective. But the challenge there is that they have been spending that amount of money and the sort of tangible progress you would hope to see hasn't been seen because we've ended up with a situation where we have these in parks and we have people who are saying the shelter system is full and unsafe and the progress on building you know affordable housing that uh, people can actually live in is still remains uh, incredibly slow right let's talk about that too because yeah you you talk about it in your piece and what is the holdup i mean you you give credit where it's due money has been spent on on housing and shelter and that kind of thing especially throughout the pandemic but as you say, it's it's very slow going. We we hear a lot of promises from all levels of government, frankly, but uh, yeah, we we don't see a lot happening, with the exception maybe of those modular houses that sprang up uh, over the pandemic. Yeah, no, and I, I do think it's important to give credit for things like that and things that have been accelerated over the course of the pandemic. You know, they did open some more shelter spaces in hotels and such, and I mean that. Uh, you know, how well that those programs have been administered, you know, is a matter of uh, a lot of debate. But I, I do think like I get pushback from people at the city, both at the political level and on staff when I write critically about their homelessness and housing efforts, because I think there's this impression that I'm saying it is, it's, you know, the situation is bad because people don't care. And I don't think that's true. I think there are a lot of people at City Hall, both counselors, politicians, and staff who who care a great deal about this problem. But ultimately, it comes down to, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. Like, what are you doing to really make fast headway on this? You know, you say it's an emergency or a crisis. We see those words a lot to describe what's going on in the city. But, you know, the response takes a sort of different shape. So the example I used in my column is the city has a housing now program that is supposed to deliver 10,000 housing units. There are 11 projects in phase one of housing now that are supposed to deliver affordable housing. And as of a couple of weeks ago, a report indicated that all 11 are delayed by at least a year. And you sort of think, you know, law of averages would say of 11 projects, maybe one of them should be on time just accidentally. Like one of 11, is that too much to ask for? And it's like, no, they're all delayed. And then, uh, you know, I looked at the budget for uh, shelter support and housing, which is the division responsible for both, you know, shelters and social housing. And they are projecting to come in underspent by about $30 million at the end of this year. And, you know, they will argue that's because they had put aside money for refugees who would uh, come into Toronto and, you know, shamefully end up in our shelter system. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen because the border remains, you know, mostly closed. But at the same time, like that is money that they budgeted to spend on helping people that is going unspent. 
So I, I do think it's not a question of, you know, do the people at City Hall care about this issue? It's a question of, you know, are they delivering as effectively as they could be delivering to not only help people who are or were in park encampments, but to prevent a situation where people have, you know, made the decision that putting up a tent in a park is the safest and best and only way they can live right now because the alternatives are are just either not there or are so unappealing uh, or so unsafe that they just, they don't want it to go there. Absolutely. Let, let's assume that, that the politicians and, and the staff, uh, both levels of of what makes a city run that they care for, you know, in various ways. And, but mm-hmm. I think as you've demonstrated it, it's a classic Toronto story. Maybe it's an every big city story, but particularly Toronto story where you may care, but there's basically just a, a big oven and you're shoveling money into it. And uh, at the end of the day, we're kind of just back to square one. I'm, I'm thinking of things like the Gardner expressway, which we still don't know exactly how, um, how that's going to happen or what it's going to cost. Um, there are a lot of examples where people seem very passionate, but they do a lot of work and spend a lot of money to get back to the status quo. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I do think like this is a bit of a hobby horse for me. I come back to it a lot. But I mean, Toronto City Hall is now in its uh, 11th year of having governments that campaign on and then govern around this idea of basically austerity, right? It's like the city has a very limited amount of money. We want to hold taxes where they are even though Toronto's property taxes are very low compared to the GTA. So there hasn't been a time in my time covering City Hall where there's been an environment where departments would be encouraged, like, you know, don't don't just tell us what you can do within your existing budget, but like, what would you need to really make progress on the area of the city you're responsible for? And that, to me, is something that is sort of we're seeing the effects of that more and more. The city has made some move under John Tory to increase the amount they spend on capital projects. So new projects like the modular housing, uh, you know, at least funding the the projects under the Housing Now program, all of which are, are delayed in phase one. But, you know, the other side of it is where we haven't seen that sort of willingness, which is the actual sort of ongoing operation and maintenance. And, you know, we're talking about housing and homelessness now, but I think an example would be, you know, something like a park where, you know, the city will spend to do all these park renovations and you'll come back in a year and the garbage cans are overflowing and some of the stuff that was installed is, you know, falling apart or hasn't been maintained. And you think, like, how does this all connect to each other? But if you look at how they budget, it kind of makes all kinds of sense, right? Like there just is not... If you build something new, but you're going to keep your property taxes at inflation, where does the money come from to take care of that new thing? So we see it all across the city. And I, I think with, with housing and homelessness, especially like it just is is really starting to play out in a, a tragic way. Right. And with all apologies to the, the feelings of some people on staff or some counselors, a question that still remains is, as you've demonstrated, this this money could have been spent far more efficiently and, and better and, and in a more humanitarian way. As the CBC, Samantha Beattie, uh, reported, only 8% of encampment residents made it into permanent housing since April 2020. So it's there's, there's a very bad, like poor success rate for these encampments. So I have to ask the question, who are these evictions for? Because it's not for people to enjoy the park, because people were. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not really for maybe it's for park maintenance uh, although uh, i i kind of i don't see the logic in as we see in moss park leaving fences up for multiple years 
but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a landscape architect, but, uh, mm-hmm. it, I just, yeah, I, I really don't know who these evictions were for. I have a suspicion, but I, I don't <laughs> think it was truly in the name of helping people in, in the encampments. Yeah, no, I mean, I have a, a, a theory that, um, you know, you and I were talking before this interview about how we're both downtown east side guys mm-hmm. now living downtown east side. And for a long time, I feel like a lot of the poverty in sort of the core area of Toronto was just sort of really concentrated in a few block area around Dundas and Sherborne, Queen and Sherborne, that area of the city. And what we've seen in recent years is that the numbers have gotten bigger. More people are falling into poverty. Housing costs are, are going up so much that people who might have been able to scrape by with like a bachelor uh, apartment now just can't do that. So the visibility of poverty and the visibility of, of homelessness has increased greatly all across the city. And I think for a lot of people, it's not necessarily about solving that, you know, solving the roots of it, tackling poverty directly, but just finding a way to see if we can sort of just cram it back in that box that it was in before. That part of the city where you just sort of, you make jokes about how you shouldn't go east of Young and all that stuff. And that is just the the status quo. So, you know, I do think it is a bit telling. I mean, you look at, you know, where the major eviction actions were, you know, it was these three parks, Alexandra, Trinity Bellwoods and Lamport Stadium. Uh, You know, they issued eviction notices, as far as I know, for for Moss Park as well. But we didn't see a mass uh, eviction there. And I don't necessarily I I don't think there should have been one there. But I do think it shows sort of a bit of the thinking about, you know, where they need to focus their efforts. So ultimately, I think this kind of evidently is, was not about helping people, but about sort of just moving them to a less visible place. Mm -hmm. And uh, before I let you go, um, do you want to tell us about City Hall Watcher and what's been going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been running City Hall Watcher. It's my weekly newsletter about Toronto City Hall for uh, almost three years now. And for the low, low price of, of just five bucks a month, every week, I provide a summary of what's going on at City Hall. I dive deep into the issues. I do data analysis. So one of the things I've been doing this summer is like picking individual intersections that are requested by readers and like diving into like four decades of data about, you know, how, you know, in the 1980s there, it was like, 80% vehicles, and now we're seeing this intersection is actually used by like 40% bikes and only 60% vehicles. So stuff like that. It's been really a fun project. Uh, it's a great opportunity for people to keep tabs on what's going on at their city hall. Uh, so yeah, like I said, I charge uh, you know a, a modest fee of five bucks a month for, for readers. But if you are a student or somebody who just can't afford the cost, you can go to cityhallwatcher.com as well and punch in your email address. And I will happily give you a uh, free subscription so you can check it out. So uh, if people are interested, just uh, pop over to cityhallwatcher.com and I would love to uh, have you as a reader. All right. Well, Matt, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks so much. This has obviously been a sad, scary time all over. But Alberta is currently battling a fourth wave of the pandemic, 
at the same time as that province's municipalities are about to go to the polls. And the mayors of both Edmonton and Calgary, Don Iveson and Nahid Nenshi, have both decided not to seek re-election. This makes those cities' elections especially important, as they could radically change the direction they've been taking for years. All of this in a pandemic and less than a month after a federal election. It's a lot. And journalist and regular Spacing Radio guest Tim Korengesser helps us make sense of it. Tim, I feel kind of bad, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic, I've been focusing on very local issues, um, things like tent encampments in, in Toronto and things like that. And, and we <laughs> frankly just didn't have the energy to to find out what was happening across the country. And we've we've sadly neglected two major cities in Canada, Edmonton and Calgary. We haven't really talked about it much in, in the last year or so. So you're you're the person I, I like to go to just to catch up. You are you live in Edmonton. You're you're a man on the ground. So uh, you know, for, first I wanted to talk about the COVID of it all. I mean, it, you guys are in a rough position right now. Yeah, we we are. The hardest part, I think, is that many people were suggesting we would be in this position back in say mid summer mm-hmm. when the provincial government announced that we were now open for summer. They were scaling back all sorts of public health measures. The minutiae of it is not something that I'm an expert in, but basically it was like a sort of a switch. It felt like a switch that we had been in a stance that we were facing this off as a public health emergency. And then it felt like suddenly now, because our vaccination rate had hit a certain threshold, that everything was okay. As time wore on, what we came to see was that the vaccination rates in a province where a lot of people, the majority of the people live in two cities, Edmonton and Calgary, mm-hmm. those can be high, but in the rural or less urban areas of the province, the vaccination rates can be incredibly low. Right. And so the it, it's like a statistical thing that, you know, the, the stats are telling you one thing, but on the ground in some communities, the level of protection was very low. And so... At the moment, we are, we've had, I think we're at the highest viral caseload that we've ever had. They've had to postpone surgeries, including, if I'm not mistaken, some for kids. Mm-hmm. So it may be, you know, one thing to talk about a fear of COVID, but this has definitely hit everybody. Everyone we know somehow has been affected by this. So the fourth wave is the, is the, the meanest wave so far. And it's the one where, Alberta really feels frustrated with itself. Like we can't seem to, we can't seem to get this right. So I don't know if that was a bit of a rant, but it's, it's been a tough, it's been a tough thing to experience. No, no, it's, it's, it's totally fair. And I am sorry, like from all the way over here in in Ontario, like it's, I read the headlines coming out of Alberta and it is, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard not to be despondent. Yeah. But a, a lot of cities, I think, have had to come up with their own way through this pandemic. And I was wondering if you noticed anything for Edmonton or Calgary where they, they sort of took the reins in a, in a local way, uh, something that made sense for them. In what some described as a vacuum of leadership, especially over this summer, mm-hmm. where we had our leader, the premier, was away taking some some time, which is, you know, completely absolutely normal and okay. 
what didn't seem to happen was a delegation of authority or someone to make decisions while that person was away, which some would argue is not okay at all. Mm-hmm. What what we saw was that cities were still willing to pick up and say, okay, we're going to put these rules back in place. Even though we have limited authority, or even though we can only do it, we can only scribble around the edges, we're going to do something, which was sort of like a rhetorical, hey, wake up sort of uh, move, which which has come to be, you know, from my perspective, at least someone who writes about this stuff and cares about cities, it's just come to be the way that the cities have been in Alberta through the pandemic is a sort of like voice for reason a little bit. Not to say that the cities have always got it right or that there is complete unanimous, excuse me, uh, Mm -hmm. agreement on what we should do or support for science. But there has been, let's say, a more moderate, less uh, worry for the the extreme anti-side of the debates or this extreme discussion of freedoms. There's just been this moderation from the cities, which is, you know, not surprising when you consider how those cities have been voting over the past multiple elections. We have progressive councils. We we have all the sort of things that people, when they think of Alberta, don't expect to have, right? So right. we buck the stereotypes. So it's been an interesting thing to watch. Cities, they haven't gotten it right, as I said, but they have they have pushed for more than we've typically gotten from the province, the province has been slow to act. If I'm just going to paint with like a very big, wide, sloppy brush. Mm-hmm. And I want to get to those, uh, those councils and, and specifically those mayors as, as well. But first, uh, we did just have a, a federal election. And so I just briefly wanted to ask you, um, you know, what the thoughts there are for the major cities. I'm sure regardless of, uh, which way the political winds change or in this case stay exactly the same, cities get nervous about, okay, well, we've had one government for six years. What's going to happen to the agreements we made in those time for long, long-term projects? Uh, in that context, is it a kind of sigh of relief? That's an interesting question. And I think there's a lot of angles to this one in Alberta. Mm-hmm. For one thing, the relationship between cities, the city governments, municipal governments, and the province has deteriorated over the past two years. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of projects that needed money uh, saw municipalities, big city mayors, however you want to frame it, end up at the doorstep of the federal government rather than the province. And so there has been this connection between, and I'm sure you're familiar with this in Ontario, but uh, the name Trudeau is not something that people really like in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's got a long history. It goes back to the 80s, the National Energy Program with uh, Justin Trudeau's dad, Pierre Trudeau. So there's just this long standing grievance. And councils here, especially Edmonton, to a lesser degree, I think Calgary, but both made deals with uh, the feds to get stuff going when they couldn't do so with the province. Mm-hmm. And so there, the federal election, I think, was kind of painted in that way. If you're thinking about the municipal races here, which are ongoing, and we'll, we're, we're going to go to the, the ballot box in October, mid-October, October 18th, mm-hmm. some were trying to use that as a wedge that, oh, that's a Trudeau candidate. He's just going to make more deals with his buddy, Justin Trudeau, or I'm going to fight Justin Trudeau. There's a bit of that. 
So that was the way that the federal government, the federal election really played out for me watching it with, with interest in the municipal races, just that you could either sort of glob on to being kind of in Trudeau's camp or wanting to fight him somehow. So I don't think that there's been a whole lot of, let's say, aftermath or feeling of relief or anything after the election. There's just been a lot of, um, I'd, I'd say just exhaustion. We already had here in Edmonton, for example, there was already fights. You know, citizens were already starting to fight against uh, some of the things that were happening with the province and using lawn signs to do so. So fight for education and stuff like that. Fight against coal, whatever it is. And then ca- along came the municipal election, which seemed to start like seven years ago. I think it, people started putting up signs back in like April. Mm-hmm. And then came the federal election. So there's just been this like noise, this level of noise that is just almost overwhelming. So yeah, the federal election is, as far as thinking about it through the municipal elections that are ongoing, um, is, is one of that. Just this Trudeau is either like your ticket to money or your hated enemy, I guess. And we, we just seen a lot of, um, use of Trudeau in that sense in the municipal races, trying to make a wedge out of it. Yeah, let's let's get into that election now because as you said it's it's happening soon October 18th. So you you've had this municipal election in the middle of a terrifying fourth wave of the pandemic and then a snap a federal election that everything has to stop and and be about that for a month. And then, you know, for context for listeners, uh, this municipal election, uh, you know, happening for municipalities all over Alberta, it it also involves two very long-term, very, as far as I know, popular mayors uh, in Calgary, Menchie, Mayor Nenshi, and uh, in uh, in Edmonton, uh, Mayor Iveson, both stepping down in the middle of all of this, creating, you know, sort of a power vacuum in, in the two major city centers. Oh boy, that's a lot. <laughs> it gets way, way, way more intense, and I'll tell you why. Okay. So in Calgary, a significant number of long-term councillors are stepping away. So All right. I think it's going to be nine new councillors on a council of 14. So significant. So new mayor, multiple new councillors. In Edmonton, there's less. I think there's five stepping away. Mm-hmm. But still, lots of change. So we're going to be asking a referendum on top of all of this. Province-wide, we'll be asking a provincial question about the equalization formula in, confe- in in the Constitution, and about daylight savings time. So we're asking two referendum questions. We're also asking voters on the same ballot who they'd like to elect, with quotation marks around it, to Senate. Okay? Okay. So bonkers stuff. It's really, really hard to know what you're voting for, or what level of government you're really engaging with. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to be voting for mayors, Reeves, whatever, and then having our say on a, uh, a referendum that may or may not have any weight when it comes to federal policy, and then mm-hmm. also offering a vote on uh, the Senate of Canada, which uh, apparently is not supposed to happen. So, uh, and then, you know, maybe the prime minister will appoint the senators that we suggest. So it's a bonkers time already. But what gets more interesting is that because of this fourth wave and because of some of the policy, the rhetoric that came out of the province 
and you know i'm i'm extremely nonpartisan and it's very difficult in these these times in alberta to speak critically of what's happened and not be labeled a partisan but mm-hmm. what has happened is that this provincial government has become so so uh, unpopular and specifically the premier that there's discussion and and very very strong discussion that this referendum which is kind of a creation of the premier on the municipal ballot We'll actually see, because people aren't getting to vote in the election that they want, which is what some people say is a provincial election, mm-hmm. they're going to use it as a protest vote. And so not only are we going to have all of this kind of bonkers happening with the municipal election already, but there could be a protest vote against the provincial premier to go along with it. So it's kind of like everything, the cliche being that everything is political just really feels incredibly true right now that... Everything mm-hmm. seems to be wrapped up in whatever's happening. It's all connected to something. So, you know, it does not feel that uh, municipal government or municipal politics are removed from provincial politics. It does not feel like provincial politics are removed from federal politics. So maybe that's what some people wanted, but on the ground, it just feels, um, it, it, it's hard to comprehend. So it, it's going to be incredibly interesting to see what happens during this vote. So, It'll be interesting to see who gets elected as mayor in Edmonton and Calgary, for instance. Are we going to mm-hmm. continue being progressive? Are we going to do a sort of pendulum thing and elect in a populist or someone who is um, right of center or a, a, a tax cutter sort of sort of mayor? But also just like, what are we going to do with this referendum? What are we going to say? And a lot of a lot of things are riding on this. You know, if there is a protest vote. That could really be bad for not only Jason Kenney, but the United Conservative Party in general. Imagine a, a scenario where in the future, Alberta tries to press its, its, its one of its longstanding grievances with Canada that it doesn't like the equalization formula. And anyone on the other side has as ammunition, well, you held a referendum and your, your citizens said they didn't care about this. Mm-hmm. Like it's madness. Yeah, for, for listeners, so that as I understand it, this referendum is on the equalization payments, as you said. What those are is basically a, a federal policy. The idea is to level the playing field for between very rich provinces like Alberta and, uh, you know, have not provinces like may, maybe, you know, think of some of the eastern coast provinces who have traditionally had basically their revenue streams dried up and, you know, cod fishing, whatever. And so, Places like Alberta feel that uh, they they already give enough. They feel <laughs> some type of way about uh, their money, as they see it, going to a province like Quebec, when a province like Quebec is largely anti-pipeline, let's say, and uh, you know they they find a hypocrisy there. It's all it's all an ancient <laughs> ancient grudges playing out on the battlefield of this federal policy. Is that a fair way to describe it? You really hit the nail there uh, with the the idea of Quebec being receiving money from Alberta or being perceived to be, and then also saying no to pipeline expansion or things like that. So that's a real grievance here. So uh, if you're going to take our money sort of thing, I'm, and this is just me like sort of, you know, saying what I hear, but if you're going to take mm-hmm. our money, then how can you stand in the way of the way that we make that money? Right. And this is very much uh, an issue that... Uh, makes sense for Jason Kenney to to make part of his brand because his brand seems to be very much, you know, playing, as you said, on, on wedge issues and, and that idea of Western alienation. 
what I don't understand, you know, I imagine a, a lot of people in Alberta don't understand is why and how this ends up on a municipal ballot and not a provincial one at some point. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a very good question. It's because, you know, A, they can, as your listeners will know, municipalities are, to borrow that overused phrase, are creatures of the province. So the province mm -hmm. can do whatever it pleases here. This has happened before. There has been Senate elections on municipal ballots before, I believe. Municipal ballots are a home for referendum, uh, a referenda. I don't, and I never know the plural of that one. It um, is referenda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're a natural home for that sort of thing. Calgary has had, I believe they're on number seven on fluoride and they're doing it again this time. So there will be a municipal referendum in Calgary as well. Okay. You know, so lots of things to vote on. It's, it, we're becoming sort of the California of, of Canada, but I think it's because they can. And then some suggested that the referendum, because uh, municipal elections are quite, they have low voter turnout, because municipal elections, especially in Edmonton and Calgary, in the past few, say, let's say 10 years, have gone very progressive, mm -hmm. that there was a concerted effort among conservatives, and this is not a party thing, just conservative thinking people, that there needed to be a sort of, to use a phrase, take back some of that control or power. So basically, we need to drive conservative thinking people out to the ballot box. What are we going to use to do that with? Mm -hmm. That's been the theory. Um, there's never been any sort of explicit, yeah, that's what we're up to sort of thing. But it does make sense. And the irony, of course, is, as I painted earlier, that that may be now backfiring in a very, very, very incredible way. So really incredible times right now. Like, I don't know what the UCP is going to do if they're afraid of that. Uh, like the members of their own party have said that they are, but who knows what's going to happen. And then you've got municipalities that are just trying to survive uh, through COVID, through all of the stresses that are being placed on them right now. You know, we've got some municipalities like Edson uh, outside of uh, Edmonton, mm -hmm made international news because they had COVID parties where people were trying to spread the virus. And I think a few of them ended in, ended up in hospital. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly hard for, I spoke to the mayor of that, that place. Like it's incredibly hard to be a municipal politician right now. You're expected to roll out the provincial messaging. And if the provincial messaging goes into a sort of void or there is no messaging or people take vacations or there's just nothing doing, You've got nothing to say and people blame you, whether it's they blame you for the restrictions or they blame you for the outcomes. Right. And so it, it just, it feels like a really awful time to be really blunt, to be a municipal politician, especially in those smaller areas, because, you know, these people are not really well paid, often volunteering a lot of their time and they're just on the receiving end. They're the front line of government, right? And it's really, really, really interesting to watch, and I'm just kind of thankful I'm not one of those mayors at the moment. Yeah, and, and two of those mayors are, are stepping down. Uh, I was hoping that you could speak a little bit about the legacy of Nahid Nenshi, uh, mayor of Calgary, and Don Iveson, mayor of Edmonton. Uh, I mean, the, it seems from far away that, like you said, uh, people who don't know Alberta politics very well might be surprised that these are two fairly progressive 
I, I believe, beloved even, at least in some circles, big city mayors. And they are, they're, yeah, they're leaving a vacuum. I think the legacy would have to be looked at, one, from within Alberta, and then two, outside of. So okay. number two would be easier. I think Nenshi and to a lesser degree, Iveson have really changed how Canadians see Alberta. They see mm-hmm. the reality, I think, now that we are a diverse, pluralistic, young, progressive, smart, go get them sort of province that is a lot different than the stereotypes that they think they know about Alberta. We are an uh, incredibly urban. Most of us live in two cities. So it's no surprise, uh, as someone who came here in 2013 from Ontario, it's no surprise that we have the politics that we do in, in cities. We are young, progressive. We have lots of post-sec and all sorts of people that maybe people outside of Alberta don't expect us to have, but but they're here. Mm-hmm. Within Alberta, it's different. Nenshi is like a hero to some. He He does not back down to anybody. Uh, he will come in and just like slap the provincial government whenever they make up, make a mistake. He is trying to push Calgary to create its own economic strategies and, and bring in an investment from uh, overseas. He's just doing all the things. But there is a substantial amount of people that do not like that, that do not like his, his let's say, extreme confidence or mm-hmm. willingness to uh, tell you that you're wrong. So Nenshi leaves, I think, less popular than you might expect. Okay. There's still popularity there, but I think there's a lot of people that are really frustrated with Nenshi. Maybe just the style or the way that the city has gone, but, and, and the same would be true here in Edmonton. Iveson is, let's say, popular among some, and then outside of that, people can't even get seem to get his name right. So... Uh, repeatedly, if you go into the comments section of newspapers or on Twitter, he's always he's always uh, screamed at or screamed about as Mayor Iverson uh, with an right. R. People don't seem to really connect with him. They don't know him well, which is interesting. So his legacy is really ironic in that it's not it's not the big politics or the flashy stuff that a lot of mayors leave behind. It's more just this stuff in the background. So we've got a city plan that like looks ahead to make Edmonton the same size geographically, but have 2 million people by 2050. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got all sorts of new LRT going in. We've got all sorts of urban thinking going on. We've got all sorts of changed processes and structures. And there's just been this like real shift into being a big city that happened because of Iveson, I would say whether that's specifically him or just the amount of energy he brought in with like-minded people, but that that's the legacy. And I, I would say that's probably true in Calgary as well, that Nenshi just brought, he was the oxygen to allow other people to burn more brightly, if that makes sense, that basically because he was there, because he was saying things and who he was, Calgary could just get on with being its progressive self. And so a lot of really positive things changed, you know, bike lanes happened during these mayors, other things like that. So the the legacy, I think, for Iveson is that it's a lot of it is really hard to erase. You can't just get rid of it now. So we've got we've got an established city plan, which is like a municipal plan, transportation plan, all rolled into one. You can't just get rid of that. 
Mm-hmm. That's there. Unless you want to do the like six years of hard work again to like rip it apart, you're not going to do that. So he's really left some like policy legacies, which whoever is mayor is going to have to contend with, you know? Well, it's a, it's an exciting uh, election to, to follow for anyone who's interested in, in Canadian urban politics. And uh, I will definitely be watching uh, the results on uh, October 18th. And I just want to thank you, Tim, for, for breaking it down for us. Do you have anything to, to plug or, or point people towards? Yeah. So I'm, I've created, because of the stakes that were involved in this coming municipal election back in February with a, another writer, we created a, a newsletter called Rage Against the Municipal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and really the, 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 the name is all about the rage that was felt toward some of these municipal leaders because they were progressive. They were singing a different song sort of thing. Right. And it's really, I feel like it's really come true that there's just been a lot of, a lot of outrage and a lot of the outrage was, was pointed toward uh, municipalities. And now, ironically, it feels like there's going to be a bit of a backfiring there that the strategy may not work. But so yeah, we created the newsletter, got lots of followers now and hoping to still in talks, but hoping to write something for the walrus about it all. But we, we will see. So just in talks, but have been chatting about this election because, you know, it's not just a standard municipal election. It it feels like everything's happening at once. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tim, thanks as always for coming on the show. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do hope things uh, break a little better over there. We do too. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All the best. Okay. That's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your friends in Edmonton, your cousins in Calgary, and one completely random stranger in Lethbridge. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes, as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us at Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, or you can visit spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, go vote, Alberta. Cheers. Cheers.